Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 159. Next week, we're going to have an interview with Joe Matt of The Wander. The following week, we're going to have Michael Vorce back on the show. But this week's episode is addressed to 70% of the Catholics in America. So you need to do everything you can to get your Catholic family and friends to listen to this episode, because I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that your loved ones are in that 70% group. When I went to receive my third degree in the Knights of Columbus, nobody had told me that we'd be quizzed on proficiency in our knowledge of the faith. I thought I might be embarrassed because, well, you know, they were knights after all. I was embarrassed, all right, embarrassed for the other 50-plus men there. With the exception of two other men, they couldn't answer the most simple catechism questions. Things like, how many sacraments are there, and... What are the mysteries of the rosary? During the social activities after the degree work, I listened to what the men were saying about what they'd just been through. To my amazement, they actually thought that they'd been asked very advanced catechism questions. That Knights of Columbus third degree was not an isolated situation. Sadly, at least 95% of American Catholics are wholly or almost wholly ignorant of the Catholic faith but I'm offering you a remedy for your parishioners. Introducing the What We Believe, Why We Believe It bulletin inserts. Endorsed by Raymond Leo Cardinal Burke, each of these inserts teaches a thumbnail catechism lesson. When your parishioners begin to get involved, they'll get many more benefits at a cost of only $19.95 a month to your parish. But you won't start out paying that because I want to give it to you for three months for free just to try it out. 
Take 11 minutes to watch a video by clicking the link in my show notes that says six-pack system bulletin inserts to learn more. This is a good idea for priests who want to help their parishioners become fully catechized, and a lot of lay people get a subscription for their parish as a way to support the parish without giving the bishop any of their money. To learn more, click on the link in my show notes that says Six-Pack System Bulletin Inserts. It just requires 11 minutes of your time. Seven out of ten Catholics in this country deny the very core dogma of our Catholic faith, and most of them don't even realize it. That would make them heretics, but for the fact that they deny this dogma isn't their fault. It's the fault of the most treacherous group of men ever to make an attempt at destroying the church. And those men aren't Freemasons or the Communist Party, but rather members of the largest criminal organization in America. Of course, I'm talking about the vast majority of bishops in the USCCB. The dogma being denied by 70% of Catholics in America is the real presence of Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist. Some of you are in that 7 out of 10 group, and you don't even realize it. Now, what I'm going to do is first explain what the Eucharist is. Then I'm going to tell you how and why those evil prelates cheated you out of the most beautiful gift God gave man. And I'm going to wrap it up by proving to you that Jesus gives us his real body and blood every time we receive communion. You'll need to get your Bible so you can follow along with me as I show you the reality of the real presence. There are two reasons I became Catholic over 30 years ago, one an intellectual reason, the other an emotional one. The intellectual reason is because it was proven to me, right from the plain text of the Bible and simple logic, that Jesus is God, that he established the Catholic Church, and that he wills all men to belong to her for our salvation. Since I was a Freemason at the time, the last thing I wanted was to become a Catholic, but neither did I want to go to hell. And having it proved to me that Jesus established the Catholic Church and that he's the one who obligated all men to belong to her, logic dictated that my refusal to become a Catholic would only result in spending eternity in hell. The emotional reason for deciding to become a Catholic came a bit later. It was proven to me, just as I intend to prove to you, that the Eucharist really is the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. The reason that was emotional for me is, I'd spent most of my life begging God to show himself to me so I could believe without any doubts. Learning about the real presence was an answer to that lifelong prayer. Some of you may think at this point I'm just a fanatic, or that I believe in superstition, or that I just hung my hat at the door and blindly accepted everything the Catholic Church said. Now, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but if you've listened to this show before, or read anything I've written, then you know I'm not stupid. I'm proud, opinionated, and rude, but I'm not stupid. I hold three college degrees, four professional certifications, and a bevy of awards in my profession, so my godfather had his work cut out for me in proving everything to me. I hope that by telling you this, I've established enough credibility with you that you'll at least listen to what I have to say. 
Most of the 70% of Catholics who deny the real presence think that the Eucharist is merely a symbol or a representation of Jesus, but that's not what it is at all. In the Holy Eucharist, Jesus gives us himself, under the appearances of bread and wine, fully and completely. He's truly present in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in order to give himself to the Father for our salvation and to give himself as divine nourishment for our souls. That's it in a nutshell. You'll more fully understand this when I prove the dogma to you. But first I want to tell you why and how the bishops cheated you out of this beautiful truth. During the pontificate of Pope St. Pius X, there was a dark and evil heresy that raised its ugly head and threatened the faith of all Catholics. It was called modernism, and Pius X condemned modernism through a decree with the English title of A Lamentable Departure Indeed, and I tell you the English name because I can't pronounce the Latin. Throughout the history of the church, when a pope condemned a heresy in the church, the heretics either left the church or renounced the heresy. This wasn't the case this time, though. Instead of leaving the church, which would have been the honest thing to do, they simply slid underneath the nearest rock and bided their time, quietly promoting their heresy to their chosen protégés. They saw their opportunity to bring havoc into the church in the aftermath of Vatican II. The world had become a very busy place after World War II, and the council began in the era when we were still trying to catch up with all the changes the war had brought into the world. Priests had become busier than they'd ever been before. So after the council, these neo-modernists came out of hiding and began holding educational events for the priests to tell them what the council taught. After all, they had no reason not to trust the nuns and their fellow priests who were teaching them, and going to seminars was easier than taking time to read the 16 documents that the council produced. They shouldn't have been trusted, though, because the people hosting these events were promoting their neo-modernist heresies in an attempt to destroy the church from within. They did a pretty good job of it, too. They convinced the priests that the Catholic Church was changing in a big way, which wasn't at all true. She hadn't changed a smidgen. And many of the priests affected by the heresies in these seminars eventually went on to become bishops. Among the evil destruction they wanted to accomplish was to convince the laity over time that the Eucharist was merely ordinary bread and wine. They did that, too, as we can see from surveys where Catholics tell on themselves that 70% of them no longer believe in the real presence. So how did they manage to convince the laity that the Eucharist is just ordinary bread without the Vatican coming down on them? Well, they made gradual, incremental changes that seem normal to you today because it's all you've ever known. But the way things were are what Christ and his church want them to be even now. The way things used to be was that only men, because Jesus set it up that way, were at the altar. We had altar rails for the laity to kneel and receive communion instead of standing. No one except the priest received the precious blood from the chalice. No one except the priest or a deacon dared to touch the Eucharist because Jesus' body is just too special for anyone other than a man of holy orders to touch. 
But the idea of these modernists was for you to stop thinking of the Eucharist as the actual body of Christ, and rather think of it as ordinary bread. They did this with incremental changes that they claim were demanded by Vatican II, which is a bald-faced lie. The first thing they did was turn the altar around so the priest would have to face the people, making it the dig-me show for the priest rather than divine worship with the focus on Jesus. Vatican II never called for that. Then they ripped out the altar rails so people would begin receiving while standing rather than kneeling before their king of creation. Later they made receiving standing mandatory once most Catholics began to do it that way. Vatican II never called for that either. If you read the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the Old Covenant sacrifices and how they were done is a blueprint for the new and everlasting covenant in the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. In those old sacrifices, God told Moses that only Levitical priests would perform the various sacrifices, so only men were at the altar. That gave it a sense of being very special. Then these evil agents of darkness began making it less special by allowing women readers and girl altar servers. Through deception, they got permission from Rome to begin allowing the laity to receive communion in the hand and extraordinary lay ministers of the Eucharist. Add to this the fact that the bishops completely stopped teaching about the real presence and their mission was complete. They had managed to avert the emphasis from the Eucharist being the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ to the Eucharist being ordinary bread. After all, if just anyone can manhandle the Eucharist, and if it's not special enough to kneel, and if women can take over an all-male role regarding the Eucharist, the laity can't possibly see it as anything other than ordinary bread. In a matter of decades, these evil agents of darkness altered 2,000 years of tradition and worship, turning the Eucharist into the Jesus cookie. Is the church crazy in believing that Jesus is really and truly present in the Eucharist, a belief that's 2,000 years old? I hope you got your Bible out when I mentioned it earlier, because now I'm going to show you why the church believes in the dogma of the real presence, and I want you to follow along in your Bible. We'll begin in Luke 22:15. Jesus and the apostles are in the upper room preparing for the Last Supper, the final meal Jesus will have before his crucifixion. He said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Think about that. Jesus knows that he's going to eat his last meal, yet he earnestly desires to eat it with the apostles. If a condemned man on death row were about to have his last meal, do you think he'd earnestly desire that final meal? If an ordinary man said he earnestly desired to have his last meal, we'd think he's nuts. But Jesus was no ordinary man. He was anxious to finally fulfill a promise he'd made earlier. We find that promise in John's sixth chapter. Looking at the entire chapter of John, we have to appreciate the way John set everything up for Jesus' Eucharistic discourse. By the way, turn to John. <laughs> oh, for those of you who need a little help, John is the fourth book in the New Testament. 
In verses 1 through 21, John sets up the discourse by showing Jesus divine power by talking about the miracles he performed to get his followers ready for the Eucharistic discourse. First, he fed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. Get it? He not only fed people miraculously, but he fed them with flesh and bread together. After Jesus was finished preaching and feeding the people miraculously, he told his apostles to get into their boat and go across the Sea of Capernaum. In the meantime, he slipped away from the people and went into the hills to pray. The people saw the apostles go across the sea, but they had no idea where Jesus was. However, they knew that wherever the apostles were, that Jesus would show up. So they spent the entire night walking around the sea to find and catch up with the apostles. During the night, while the apostles were going across the sea, Jesus came to the apostles walking on water. The third miracle here was that as soon as he got into the boat, they suddenly found themselves on the shore where Jesus wanted them. Later that morning, the people who spent the night walking around the sea found Jesus with the apostles. They said, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus cut right to the chase when he answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then the people asked him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? This was the question that Jesus waited for. Their question led them right into what Jesus wanted to tell them. He said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. The next question they asked really floors me. After the miracles they'd already seen, they had the audacity to ask him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now Jesus had them right where he wanted them. Jesus replied, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people replied, Sir, give us this bread always. Now Jesus launches into his Eucharistic discourse. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus also said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Because Jesus said that he'd come down from heaven, the Jews began to grumble. They asked among themselves, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? After informing the Jews that they were now being taught directly by God by quoting a prophet, Jesus went on to say, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
and the bread that I will give for the life of the world to come is my flesh. The Jews grumbled among themselves again. They said, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? By saying this, the Jews were clearly thinking that Jesus was being literal. And they were right, because Jesus became even more forceful in his language when he said, Truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He became even stronger so there'd be no misunderstanding. He said, For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Then John tells us that many of the people there just couldn't take this. They said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? John tells us at this point many of his disciples forever walked away. Now, if Jesus didn't mean what he said literally, if they failed to understand his meaning, he had a moral obligation to say something like, Hey guys, you don't understand. Come back and I'll explain it to you. But he didn't do that. Jesus let them abandon him rather than back down from what he was saying. The apostles didn't understand either. Jesus asked them, Do you want to go away as well? Peter, speaking for all of them, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter was saying that they didn't understand any better than those who'd walked away, but they had a supernatural faith that Jesus would reveal it to them. Now you know why Jesus earnestly desired his last meal with the apostles. He wanted to finally reveal what he had promised in John 6. And that's exactly what he did at his final Passover supper. This is the third Passover Jesus had celebrated with the apostles, but this final one is the only one recorded by all four gospel writers. Why? Because this is when Jesus instituted his real presence in the Eucharist. A logical question to ask is whether or not the apostles really believed in the real presence. A quick answer to that is found in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 29. Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning in a state of mortal sin, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, if the Eucharist is a mere symbol or representation of Jesus, how in the world can you eat judgment on yourself by receiving communion while in a state of mortal sin? And this was reiterated by every church father from the first century and has been taught by the Catholic Church for 2,000 years. As we've clearly seen, Jesus promised us his own flesh and blood for our consumption in John 6. He did this for our own salvation. So if you're one of the 70% of Catholics who don't believe in the real presence, in order to continue to deny it, you have to call Jesus, the apostles, and the church fathers all liars. (laughs) 
I know that many, many of you either have an unhealthy weight problem or know others who do. I'm excited about what Java Burn is doing for me on weight loss, and that's why I'm sharing it with you here. Full transparency though, Java Burn claims to have an effect on your energy level, making you feel more energetic throughout the day. I haven't noticed that benefit, but everyone's different. You may have more energy, but I haven't. What I have had is a weight loss of about 20 pounds in the two months I've used Java Burn. You may not have results as good as I've had, but yours may be even better. Of course, it may not work for you at all. Who knows? I can only tell you what Java Burn is doing for me. So if you've got a problem with your weight like I've had, you might want to give all natural Java Burn a try. Just click on the Java Burn link in my show notes to see the same video I watched. I'm glad I watched it. Watching it led me to the only way I've been able to lose weight in recent years. I should tell you that due to the supply chain crisis, it took me three or four weeks to get my order of Java Burn. By the way, I'm so sold on this product that I've acquired a six-month supply. Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, wants to make sure you're informed about all the Catholic news you need to know. Here's Joe Sixpack's top five Catholic news picks for this episode. Catholic news pick number five. Hats off to the Washington Examiner. Governor Glenn Youngkin, the new governor of Virginia, signed a number of executive orders on his first day in office, including a ban on critical race theory and another ban against mass mandates in Virginia schools. Parents should have a say in what is taught in school because, in Virginia, parents have a fundamental right to make choices with regard to their child's upbringing, education, and care, Youngin said. To parents, I say we respect you, and we will empower you in the education of your children. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick number four. Hats off to Fox News. British police have arrested two teenagers in connection with a hostage-taking incident that occurred over the weekend at a synagogue in Dallas, Texas. Malik Akram, a British national, was identified as the individual responsible for taking the hostages. Law enforcement confirmed that all hostages escaped unscathed, but that Akram died. Yee-haw! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic News Pick Number 3 Hats off to Town Hall A new Heartland Institute and Rasmussen Reports poll revealed that a high percentage of Democrats support the enactment of tyrannical COVID-19 measures against unvaccinated people. 
Journalist Scott Moorfield reported, If you are unvaccinated, 55% of Democrats want to fine you, 59% want you confined to your home, 48% want you fined or imprisoned for questioning the vaccine efficacy, 45% want you forced into designated facilities, 46% want you digitally tracked, and 29% want to take your children. Those are fighting words. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number number two. two. Hats off to the BBC. A Canadian father who has not been vaccinated against COVID has temporarily lost the right to see his 12-year-old child. A judge ruled his visits would not be in the child's best interest. The judgment is the first depriving a parent of access rights on immunization grounds. The judge's decision, made at the end of last month in the Quebec province, suspends the father's visitation rights until February, unless he decides to get vaccinated. The child's mother, who lives with another partner, reported on her child's father to the court by using his social media posts to show how he was opposed to vaccines. No, no, no! You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. Catholic Catholic News Pick number one. Hats off to Axios. A growing number of lawmakers are exploring a change to the 1887 Electoral Count Act, which President Trump sought to use to have Vice President Mike Pence block certification of election results from several states in the 2020 election. A bipartisan group of senators are working on legislation to clarify the 19th century law. A key conservative, Representative Jim Banks of Indiana, has also signaled his support for reforming the law. It's a muddled, flawed act, and Congress must clarify the essential process of certifying elections, said Banks, who leads the 158-member Republican Study Committee. Why, you must be delusional or something. You can read the whole story by clicking the link in my show notes. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill Sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. This is the next to the last of Simon Rafe's case files on communion in the hand. In this one, Simon will show us how America's bishops are so evil that they violate the very indult they got from Rome deceptively in the first place. Let's listen. The indult for communion in the hand in the USA was granted in 1977. Because of deception and behind-the-scenes machinations used by Bernadine's Agents of Darkness, Faithful Catholics legitimately ask if true, genuine permission was given. Permission under deceit is no permission, and there was plenty of deceit to go around. But there is more to this issue than just the underhanded tactics used by the NCCB to gain the indult. 
And while the more might seem on the face of it to be just further abuses piled on top of an existing abuse, a deeper look at it shows Orthodox Catholics, concerned with reverence for the Holy Eucharist, can take advantage of the situation to fight against communion in the hand. It works like this. When Rome gives special permission to break or set aside a law, she doesn't do so without restrictions. She does so conditionally, using the Latin phrase sine qua non, which means without which nothing. In essence, Rome says you can do things differently from the norm, but only if you meet all these conditions. And that is important. Sine qua non, without which nothing, perhaps that would be better phrased without each nothing, or without all nothing. Each and every one of a set of sine qua non conditions must be met in order for the indult to be active. In the case of communion in the hand, there are several conditions and all must be met. They are found in a letter from the Congregation for Divine Worship issued to bishops' conferences who sought and obtained an indult. It's written not in English or even Latin, but in French. Remember that detail and file it away. We are most familiar with it in English, and I won't force you to parler le français, but bear in mind any English version is a translation of the original official document. It outlines the conditions, but it begins by saying, In reply to the request of your conference of bishops regarding permission to give communion by placing the host on the hand of the faithful, I wish to communicate the following. Pope Paul VI calls attention to the purpose of the instruction Memoriali Domini of 29th May 1969 on retaining the traditional practice in use. At the same time, he has taken into account the reasons given to support your request and the outcome of the vote taken on this matter. The Pope grants that throughout the territory of your conference, each bishop may, according to his prudent judgment and conscience, authorize in his diocese the introduction of the new rite for giving communion. The condition is the complete avoidance of any cause for the faithful to be shocked and any danger of irreverence towards the Eucharist. Right there, we see the traditional practice, communion on the tongue is to be retained and we are told the purpose of Memoriale Domini was not to give indults, but rather to keep things the way they were. Notice also another interesting thing. Each bishop may authorize in his diocese the introduction of the new rite for giving communion. An indult is permission, not an order. And when it is granted, it is up to individual bishops, not the conference as a whole, to decide whether or not to make use of it. A local ordinary can and should decide whether or not to allow the use of any indult in his diocese. If a bishop tells you about anything, his hands are tied because of the wishes of the conference, he is either ignorant or deceiving you. Giving the impression he would do things differently, well, but you know, the conference, it's most often just a way he can cover himself, introducing abusive, Protestant-inspired practices without looking like he is the one pushing for it. As I said, there are several conditions, but they are summed up by a single phrase, much like the whole of the Catholic life is summed up by the words of Jesus Christ, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The instruction says, the condition is the complete avoidance of any cause for the faithful to be shocked and any danger of irreverence towards the Eucharist. Now, just as much ink has been spilled and many homilies preached on just how we are to love God and our neighbor, so too is avoiding irreverence better explained. These are the conditions, and we are going to go through them and show not only how they aren't being met, but also how the existence of some of these conditions gives us, faithful Catholics with a reverence for the Eucharist, both hope and a weapon against communion in the hand. The first condition is that communion in the hand cannot be imposed in a way that would prevent the people from receiving communion on the tongue. If communion in the hand is offered, and remember it does not have to be, 
then it cannot be to the exclusion of communion on the tongue. Well, is that being followed? No, it's not. Not universally. There are horror stories, stories of people kneeling to receive the Eucharist on the tongue and being told to get up, of having the Eucharist shoved into their folded hands, of being taken aside after Mass and told, that's not what we do here. Even faithful Catholics being yelled at during communion and told to stand and take Jesus into their hands. Now, priests are only human. Perhaps some are ignorant, tired, having a bad day. Individual, unfortunate incidents are understandable and do not invalidate the condition for permission. But this is not a series of individual unfortunate incidents. This is policy. This is a deliberate deception and obfuscation by the Bishop's Conference. Their own website says, In the United States, the body of bishops determined that communion should be received standing and that a bow is the act of reverence made by those receiving. That gives the impression communion in the hand is the norm, which is not the case. Such a thing is a violation of both the letter and spirit of memorali domini and of the indult itself. At that point, individual priests, perhaps merely useful idiots, but witting or not agents of darkness, feel justified in haranguing the faithful to receive standing and in the hand. After all, should they not follow the wishes of the church who says to receive in the hand? That this condition is unmet is a serious issue, but there is value in knowing it. Now, when and if you are told to stand and receive Jesus in your hands, you can reference this condition, as well as the documents and instructions that came before it. You will be able to say politely but firmly that you do not only have a right to receive on the tongue, but that is the better preferred method. The second condition says the new practice must be put into place carefully and gradually, not indiscriminately. It's too late to do anything about it now, of course. The practice has been introduced, and not carefully and not in a discriminating manner. But the mere fact this happened, that it was quickly pushed through so quickly, reveals, once again, the conditions for permission are not being met. Now, the third condition is perhaps the most interesting and the most damning to the cause of communion in the hand. It's also the one where the language of the document comes into play most significantly. The condition reads, in part... The option offered to the faithful of receiving the Eucharistic bread in their hand must also increase their faith in the sublime reality of the Lord's body and blood, which they touch with their hand. Their attitude of reverence must measure up to what they are doing. Note that word there, must. It must increase their faith in the real presence. Now, that is a good translation from the language of the eldest daughter of the church, but there are many, many bad translations floating around, including ones which replace the word must with the word will which, of course, turns the whole thing on its head. Now, French isn't an easy language. It's a romance language, which doesn't mean it's great for flirting with a wine-sipping beauty called Celeste you met in La Quatrième Arrondissement. Mais non! Romance comes from Roman, and it means it is a Latin-based language. English is Germanic in the main, and so there is a gulf spanned only by bridges built from Rosetta stones. This sort of translation error is to be expected, is what I'm saying. But the fact it was this mistranslation, a mistranslation that completely changes the meaning and changes it into supporting communion on the hand, well, that's suspicious, no? It's also not as if the phrase makes sense in context. The document is all about conditions, not declarations of what communion in the hand will do. The third condition is just that, a condition for, not an advantage of, communion in the hand. And it's a condition which absolutely cannot be met. The documents of Paul VI, Mysterium Fidei, Memorale Domini, and the rest, not to mention writings of other popes, make that clear. They are full of references to a danger of communion in the hand being of loss of faith in the real presence. And the condition isn't a neutral either. Communion in the hand must lead to an 
increase in faith of the real presence, not merely not damage it. That, frankly, is the kicker right there. Pretty much everything written about communion in the hand warns of the danger of our loss of faith. By receiving the Eucharist in the manner we might receive ordinary food, we risk coming to think of it as ordinary food, which it absolutely is not. No matter what you might think about communion in the hand, no one is saying the method will lead to an increase of faith in the real presence. At best, people say it won't do any harm. Never has anyone said treating the Eucharist in exactly the same way as bread and wine will lead people to being even more convinced it isn't actually bread and wine and is, in fact, really, truly, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Even if that was the only condition, then any and all indults for communion in the hand would be invalid. Sina qua non, without which nothing. Without an increase in faith in the real presence, no communion in the hand. Poll after poll taken over the last half century, when communion in the hand has been introduced in the USA and all over the world, reveal a deplorable decrease in faith in the real presence. Even if this cannot be lain at the feet of communion in the hand, it's clear this abuse hasn't led to the required increase. Now, for any priests out there, you have some serious reflecting to do. The church commands communion in the hand is only allowed if the faith in the real presence is increased. You are the pastor of your flock. You are responsible for them and their faith. If communion in the hand isn't actively increasing their faith, remember, it must increase their faith, not merely not decrease it. Then no permission to offer the Eucharist in that manner. And universal church law stipulates the Eucharist must be distributed on the tongue in the absence of an indult otherwise. Unless a congregation are seeing their faith in the real presence increased by communion in the hand, then distributing communion in that manner is to disobey the church. As a priest, it is your duty to consider that. As laity, it is your duty to bring this politely and charitably, but firmly, to your pastor's attention. The fourth point of the document is not a condition, but rather instead a suggestion of how communion in the hand might be offered. Thankfully, this suggestion of self-communication, of the communicant taking the host from the ciborium, has been now forbidden by Rome. Similarly, the sixth condition explicitly states that hosts which have been dipped in the precious blood, a valid practice called intinction, which allows for communion under both kinds, may never be placed in the hands of the faithful. Both of these points, the initial prohibition on placing a host dipped in the blood in the communicant's hand and the eventual prohibition of self-communication, are clearly designed to avoid a dreadful possibility, the loss of particles of the Eucharist. Be it drops of the precious blood or fragments of the host, Jesus Christ is contained whole and entire in the smallest visible particle of the Eucharist. Remember what Memorali Domini said about this. What you have allowed to fall, think of it as though one of your own members were amputated. But it's worse than that, of course. Christ does not speak often about amputation, but he speaks once and that's enough. He says it's better to lose a limb than go into hell. In effect, he says it's better to suffer amputation than to sin. And sin is first and foremost an act against the body of Christ. To allow the literal body of Christ to fall to the floor, not through accident, but through inattention and casual irreverence, is a dreadful thing. Accidents, of course, happen, but we should not invite them, and we should take every precaution to prevent them. The fifth condition speaks directly to this issue, saying, Care must be taken not to allow particles of the Eucharistic bread to fall or be scattered. And this here is a central issue. It's tempting to say that, of course, care can be taken, that the laity can be careful and check their hands for fragments. But firstly, how often is that actually done? The answer is rarely, if ever. And this condition does not just weigh on the laity saying, either pay attention or receive on the tongue. No, this condition weighs on the ministers of the Eucharist, the priests and deacons. 
They must take care to not allow, and note that, not allow, not do their best to prevent, fragments from falling on the floor. It is the responsibility of the priest to determine if there is a risk of fragments of the Eucharist being scattered or lost, and part of that is determining whether or not the laity receiving are going to take the care to check their hands for particles afterwards and carefully and reverently consume them. If the priest thinks the laity might not check, then this condition is not met and communion cannot be distributed into the hand. The rubrics of the Mass, the instructions on how to say the Mass, are very clear regarding the position of the priest's hands and how to clean the vessels so not a single fragment of the Eucharist is lost. Priests are told to keep their finger and thumbs together to make use of a pattern to clean the vessels in a particular, precise manner. If the priest follows these instructions, then barring some horrible accident, no loss of particles should occur. But when placing the host into the hands of the laity, well, well, we've got an experiment. It's an eye-opener, to say the least. Check this out. Hello, I am a scientist. This is a simple experiment will show the inevitable danger of the profanation of the Eucharist if it is received in the hand. This is an unconsecrated host. Obviously, I would never use a consecrated host for this experiment. The Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, but is under the appearance of bread and wine. That means the Eucharist behaves in every way our senses can measure exactly like bread. I'm wearing a black leather glove because leather closely simulates human skin, and because black will show up any fragments or particles the host left behind more easily. Now watch this. I place the host on the palm exactly as a priest or extraordinary minister would do, and then lifted it off just as I would do if I were receiving. Observe the small particles left behind. Remember, if this were a consecrated host, if this were the Eucharist, each of those particles would be Jesus Christ body, blood, soul, and divinity. Those particles have been broken off from the host and are not picked up by the communicant and consumed. That experiment reveals without a shadow of a doubt there is no way to put the Eucharist into the hand of a communicant without small fragments breaking off. Yes, the faithful could carefully clean their hands afterwards, paying great attention, but do they? Would they? And frankly, why should they? Why risk it? Communion on the tongue avoids all these problems. If fragments break off the host when it is placed on the flesh of the communicant, it doesn't matter. They will not be lost because they're already in his mouth. Placing communion directly onto the tongue of the faithful avoids any danger of loss of particles through inattention or accident. And of course, although this is very disturbing to contemplate, it significantly minimizes any risk of the Eucharist being taken and deliberately profaned by those opposed to the Catholic faith. There is no way to completely prevent the risk of profanation, but to ignore the vast gulf that exists between the levels of risk inherent in communion in the hand versus communion on the tongue is to not just be foolish, but willfully ignorant and idiotic. To do so would be akin to saying that because many people die on the roads, we might as well jaywalk, not wear a seatbelt, drive drunk, and swerve into oncoming traffic. Accidents happen, but a sensible and holy man doesn't invite them. Remember, sine qua non, without which nothing. Care must be taken to not allow fragments to fall or be scattered. As recently as 2004, the Congregation for Divine Worship says, If there is a risk of profanation, then Holy Communion should not be given in the hand to the faithful. There is always a risk of profanation, and that risk is greatly increased by communion in the hand. It is frankly impossible to look at the conditions for permitting communion in the hand, even setting aside the underhanded and deceitful way permission was initially obtained, and conclude communion in the hand is even permitted, let alone preferred, or a good idea.
It's high time priests and bishops realize the danger of communion in the hand, the danger of profanation of the Eucharist, the damage done to the faith of Catholics, the introduction of Protestant-inspired theology by agents of darkness eager to break down the distinctions between the sacred and the profane, between priests and laity, between even God and man. It's high time they realized the dangers and did what Malcolm Cardinal Ranjit said in his introduction to the book Dominus Est. I think it's now time to carefully evaluate the practice of communion in the hand and, if necessary, to abandon what was actually never called for in the Second Vatican Council document Sacrosanctum Concilium, nor by the Council Fathers, but was in fact accepted after it was introduced as an abuse in some countries. And that, of course, is the problem in a nutshell. Communion in the hand is not, in truth, de facto legal. It is an abuse that has been accepted and which the people do not know enough about to properly challenge. But hopefully, the work my team and I have done has given you the understanding and tools you need to fight this abuse, to stand up and resist it. You have the knowledge and, more importantly, the law on your side. Study hard, but pray harder. Pray fervently for the strength and courage to defend Christ in the Eucharist and to help your fellow Catholics deepen their faith in the real presence. My team and I have worked hard. But we've built our work on the shoulders of giants, men like the popes, Paul VI, John Paul II, and Benedict, men like Cardinal Gutt and Bishop Blanchette, and of course, Cardinal Rangif. But there is one particular man, a voice crying in the wilderness on this issue, who deserves our particular praise. My favourite agent is on the case, the last leg of her mission, to bring the final piece of this puzzle together. Discover why thousands of readers worldwide turn to The Wanderer newspaper for weekly perspective and analysis of the news and events that increasingly threaten our values and our way of life. Hello, my name is Joe Matt, publisher of America's oldest national Catholic weekly newspaper, The Wanderer. If you take your Catholic faith seriously and you are concerned about the direction of our country, the ever-encroaching hand of big government, the assault of the culture on the traditional family, and the threat of progressive leaders in our churches who embrace much of the current leftist culture rather than opposing it, you will find a home in the pages of The Wanderer. If you are tired of being force-fed the agenda-driven false narratives of the day by the godless dominant media and the political elite who preside within our government, our schools, and yes, in our Catholic churches, it is time for you to take a look at The Wanderer. Every week The Wanderer addresses these concerns, exposing the who, what, and the why with sound analysis and solutions to these problems that threaten the values we hold dear. Not only is The Wanderer a great source for the issues that affect our lives, but it is also a great tool to learn more about the treasures of our Catholic faith and how to defend it in this time of great moral decay. I am so confident you will like The Wanderer. For you six-packers out there, I have a special offer. For one dollar, that's one dollar, we are offering new subscribers the opportunity to receive one month's worth of issues. That's four weekly issues. Take The Wanderer for a test drive. After one month, it is nine dollars a month. You can cancel anytime you want. I hope you will take advantage of this limited offer today. Text the word NEWS to 830-331-5729 and I will send you a link to this offer or look for the link in Joe's show notes below. The Wanderer. For 154 years, unabashedly pro-life, independent, and conservative in its politics, and steadfast in its defense of Orthodox Catholicism. The Catholic Church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote.
This week's Catholic quote is from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. She said, If I had to advise parents, I should tell them to take great care about the people with whom their children associate. Much harm may result from bad company, and we are inclined by nature to follow what is worse than what is better. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Wenceslaus was the son of a Christian duke of Bohemia, but his mother was a cruel pagan. Through the care of his holy grandmother, Ludmilla, herself a martyr, Wenceslaus was educated in the true faith and had a special devotion to the Blessed Sacrament. On the death of his father, his mother took over the government and passed a series of new laws persecuting Catholics. In the interests of the faith, Wenceslaus claimed and obtained, through the support of the people, a large portion of the country as his own kingdom. His mother made her second son an ally against the Christians. Wenceslaus ruled as a brave and pious king, provided for all of the needs of his people, and when his kingdom was attacked, overcame the invading army with the sign of the cross. In the service of God, Wenceslaus was most faithful, and planted with his own hands the wheat and grapes used for Holy Mass, which he never failed to attend. His piety was the occasion of his death, though. Once after a banquet at his brother's palace, to which he'd been treacherously invited, he went as usual to pray before the tabernacle that night. There, at midnight on the Feast of the Angels in the year 938, he received his crown of martyrdom when his brother wielded the death blow. In this case, jealousy and lust for power led a man to kill his own brother, regardless of God's commandment. St. Wenceslaus, on the other hand, loved his brother so much that he wanted to be reconciled to him. He was rewarded for his charity by being martyred before the Blessed Sacrament. Hey, six-pack warriors. Before you leave this episode, be sure to go to my show notes and click on the subscribe link. Just pick Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Amazon Music, whichever one you want to subscribe through. You don't have to subscribe to hear the show, but the more subscribers there are, the more these platforms will make the cantankerous Catholic known to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. The more reviews, the more the show gets shown to Catholics looking for good podcasts. And I thank you. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It. 